we'll look forward to hearing what your thoughts are on recent events, uh, most notably the uh, rockets landing in Poland, uh, I think about 24 hours ago. I may be off about that. Uh, we talked to uh, Agnieszka yesterday about the timing. She thought it happened uh, around this time. I'm actually not sure, but welcome. Thank you for being here. Great to have you with us, Dan. Well, thank you. Thank you. Although uh, you did a masterful job without me, so I'm waiting for my pink slip. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> great. Uh, well, not great. I Whatever. Um, we're going to talk almost completely about Russia today. Mm -hmm. And... Um, well, that sounds so ominous, Russia today. Uh, today, we're going to talk almost completely about Russia. Is that better? You got it. <laughs> yes, I do not want any official affiliation with the uh, organization known as Russia today. So thank you for catching that, correcting me. Uh, I think it's obvious that we have to start out today by talking about what happened yesterday in Poland. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm glad we're not running this yesterday. Um, because we didn't know much, we know much more right now. But I think it's a good lesson to learn how to analyze such events. Uh, unpredictable, but somewhat predictable. And I'll come back in a moment why it could be predictable. But when we are confronted with a situation about which we know a little, we have to at least ask ourselves, now, what are the questions, key questions that we have? And there are three types of questions. If we just roll back, say 20 hours um, backwards, the questions would be uh, what it is, uh, who did it, and why. Really three things that matter because the were uh, is clearly shown in this unpronounceable village somewhere by the media, where from is part of the question who. So I think the question who is the most important one, um, and really here there are only four options. There are only four options. There were only four options, possible options, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, right? It's very unlikely, that, you know, United States. Right. Uh, well, uh, but I mean, isn't it also unlikely that Poland did it? Obviously, there are different levels of probability. Margarita mm -hmm. on, on Russian TV would say, of course, it's Poland that bombed itself to escalate the war. But let's not forget why that probability is so high in the Russian media. November is the month of Polish hatred in Russia, right? Hatred, you know, this is like in Aurelian 1984, hate, hate, hate. Why? Mm. Because on November 5th, there is a national uh, holiday in Russia, which replaced with some delay because there was nothing in November between 91 and 2005, but it replaced the original uh, Praznik holiday commemorating the October Revolution, which was actually according to the calendar always at the beginning of November. So to give something Russians in November, they came up with this idea in 2005 to commemorate what? To commemorate kicking out Poles from Moscow when, when Moscow was occupied by Polish forces in 17th century, early 17th century. It was about 15 years of wars during which Poles installed a Tsar, um, Vladislav was a candidate, there was a conflict because the Polish crown wanted him to be to re re remain Catholic and to actually reconvert uh, Russia into Catholicism. That wasn't very well taken by Russians. And to this day, you have this myth about the patriotic Russians kicking out Poles mm. in, I think, 1612, if my memory is correct. It was somewhere around 1610, 1612. Very, very 
deeply ingrained now in this, you know, indoctrinated Russia moment. There is a monument not far away from St. Basil's Church in Moscow of the two great heroes, I mean, Pozharsky, who, of course, contributed to kicking out Poles. So there's a lot of Polish hatred all in the media right now. And there is even, I, I found a very interesting streak on the Russian media where they compare the greatest patriots of this special operation, um, Prigozhin, who's the head of the Wagner group, uh, the mercenary group, and uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of the Chechen, the real two patriots. So mm. they are like, I mean, in Pozharsky back in 17th century, they'll kick out those foreigners, those Nazis, those Poles. Uh, you know, it's something that goes quite quite a bit deeper, that, that sort of deep, deep hatred of Poles. Remember, when was that? About 10 years ago, um, Ukraine and Poland jointly um, organized the European soccer tournament. So the European Cup for Nations, mm-hmm. Nations Cup. This was done together between Ukraine and Poland. And, and Russia participated in this, and Russia played against Poland in Warsaw. And I watched it from a you know place in deep in the former Soviet Union. It happened to be uh, somewhere near Tashkent in, in Uzbekistan. So everybody around me was you know, Russian speakers. And it was, uh, it was quite remarkable. Um, Russian hooligans uh, walked down the main bridge in, in Warsaw, which you probably know, uh, chanting, Zies Rasiya, Zies Rasiya, this is Russia. This is Russia. Well, when you have hooligans in a foreign country irking local hooligans, it never ends particularly well. And that right. Um, but that's and in this case, bit. hooligans uh, uh, taunting the locals, and there's yeah, centuries of yeah. yeah. I, I cannot say that Poles should be particularly proud of their hospitality. Yeah, say um, to you know, just just use a euphemism. But, you know, it shows the, the, the level of animosity there is. Mm. And, of course, it's being bolstered by very dedicated support that Poland has offered, is offering to Ukraine all the time, both directly on a bilateral basis and as a conduit of Western American and Western help. Um, yes. Not far away from that village. Okay. So this was the first question. The first question is who did it? And there were those four options, different levels of probability. You rightly pointed it out. The second thing is, you know, what is it? Is it a missile? Is it an element of our defense? Or is it just some debris from projectiles that collided in, up in the air? Right. right. So that's a, that's a technical question to resolve. And that's an fairly easy to resolve. And of course, most of the speculation related to the third area. You know, why? Why did it happen? Right. Was it just an accident or was it deliberate? And so once you have those three questions, uh, deliberate or accident, Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, or Poland, or just a projectile debris or a missile or an air part of the air, air defense system. Um, that makes you 24 different permutations between those. Yes. Some very unlikely, others more likely. Then you can add the third one in terms of the reasons, and nobody really clearly speculated about it. Because in the hybrid war between the deliberate and accidental, there's this third one, this Schrodinger's cat, which is both dead and alive. Right, so you do something to look like an accident, but it's not a likely accident. Of course, then we know when there is a repeated accident, right? Yes. Uh, you know that gives us this third option in terms of the whys, in terms of the reasons, and increases the permutations from twenty-four to thirty-six. So go fix. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not so important what happens. So not the ontology of that event. If you continue this algorithm further. 
about yes. what we can know about the event, which is the epistemology of this, because all of the what matter is beyond is, of course, decisions taken on the back of what we know. Yes. And so here, there are only two types of answers. So we further down in the analytical uh, tree. One answer is according to principles. Okay. So say Article 4, Article 5, this is a NATO member. And this is how quixotic it is. You know, the world stopped really yesterday. I was on the trade floor at work and everybody's sending this message. Oh my God, a NATO country tech. Two people died. Tragic as it is, Ukraine has lost at least 70,000 people. Yes. And it's like any other day in the office, right? So that shows the absurdity of the situation of, of the attack on a, on a sovereign country, um, allegedly because Ukraine wanted to become a member of NATO. Well, had they become a member of NATO, not a single Ukrainian would be dead, not even two. Right. 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 So. But let's come back to this. So principles is one way to take a decision. The other one is, of course, avoid something like this future. And you can combine the two. So you can have the consultations according to Article 4 of NATO and indeed try to prevent future events like this. And that means strengthening our defenses, not only in Ukraine, but also in the countries that are close to the, uh, to the war theater, indeed close to Russia. For this, there is a bit of a split. We mentioned this the other day. There's a bit of a split in in, in, in the European defense system because Germany, Scandinavian countries, and the Baltic countries have now joined to build their own system called ESSI. Poland is not part of this for whatever reasons. And actually, other NATO, large NATO members, Spain, France, Italy, here and now. So I don't know exactly forward. Two different ones. And our defense is never really 100%. Yeah, not right. in Israel, not here, not, not really, and nor will it be in, in Ukraine. But I think, I hope that in addition to those, I certainly rate the German systems that Ukraine received, which are very, um, there will be more provided to Ukraine to reduce that damage. I mean, that, whatever happened there, we know there's probably 300 our defense system that was chasing a Russian. A, 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 a Russian missile. Uh, it happened because Russia sent the 1900 missiles on the right. Ukraine, including Western Ukraine, including very close to uh, to the following border. So that's the original for what happened. But we know it all now, and I just very strongly encourage uh, everybody to sort of go through that um, algorithm of potential identification potential question that one might have before the jumping to conclusions and things happen happen in the future. But repeat accident would be um, let's say interesting to say. Um, one more thing about Polish reaction, which I saw in the media, um, somewhat impatient with a very reserved statement from NATO. But I think it's good that NATO had reserved <laughs> and indeed actually so did the Polish and by and Sullivan about uh, where, you know, things of higher importance are, are happening, of course, uh, the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping. We probably uh, devote, some, devote some time on the next occasion. You know, these things, uh, it, it was in a way helpful to have uh, the G7 members sitting together. That happens and coordinate the response and coordinate the, uh, the activity on the ground is Polish and American forces trying to figure out what to do. 
I want to actually ask you about that. So this is this is my my speculation, and as have I, as I have shared here many times since February twenty fourth, I've gotten very good at being smacked down and told, "Well, you only think that way because you're from the West." So this may be one of those cases. Um, but you know, historically, over the last month or two, a victory by Ukraine, like a liberation of a of a region, has been followed up with a lot of uh, bombings or missiles coming in from Russia on Monday. Yesterday was Tuesday. The liberation of Kherson was on Friday. So Russia could have rained those missiles down on Ukraine on Saturday, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or, or sort of following their own tradition of Monday, but they waited until Tuesday. And I just wonder if the meeting in Bali, the, the G20, and maybe even the announcement by Donald Trump of his run for the presidency might have impacted their choice of when this doesn't have anything to do with the Polish, what happened in Poland. But do you think they might have been raining those missiles down all over Ukraine because the G20 started on Tuesday and maybe even the Trump announcement on the same day? I probably would dismiss the Trump non-event because it really became a non-event precisely because of that. Um, so maybe not that. Two things. One internally driven in Russia and one indeed, I think you're pointing out correctly, the G7, G20. <laughs> Zelensky called it G19. Yes, I, I, which, you know, hats off to him. I thought that was a brilliant, really, some integral move. Yes. Really, really pretty good. So, so the, the really interesting thing is that I'm not sure about Mondays, but from our Western perspective, I'm aligned here with, we find it hard to understand on Russian salvos. Russian salvos, for example, Gutierrez, head of UN, on his first trip to Kiev. First time in weeks, Russia decides to bomb Kiev on that day. Yes. He's there, right? Then uh, von Lambrecht, Minister of Defense, Germany Minister of Defense. We know how critical Germany is this sort of a pivot, right? Trying yes. to advance a funny dance between China and 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 Europe, if not necessarily in the US, if not necessarily in a more Russia and US. But you know, her first trip her first trip to Odessa. What happens? Russian bomb Odessa. Right? Yes. Um Steinmeier, the president of Germany, travels. He has to go to a bunk yes. where he is. That's you know how counterproductive that is. You know, G twenty when the G7 countries, plus Spain and some other Western countries, which were there, were pushing very hard for a common statement. I think in a common statement, the eventual wording is that most countries you know, express themselves against the war and so on. And it was possible to corral China to some extent to this. Although if you look at the Chinese um, official government statement, anything about the nuclear weapons has been just taken out. Whereas yeah. in, in, in Biden's statement, it's still there. So completely now, right right now, those statements have very little to do with mention that the Chinese statement is three times as long as as, as Biden's statement trying to uh, prove that Biden actually legitimizes Xi Jinping's party. But coming back to this issue, G20, you know, big salvo, political salvo globally, as the non-G7 members uh, mostly signed up to the anti-Russian yes. in, in Bali, reluctantly. Think about 
uh, you know, Indonesia, think about India, think about Saudi Arabia and so on. By and large, that happened in absence of, of Putin. So that's one thing. And the second thing, what I noticed is the Russian mail bloggers were outraged that Zelensky traveled to herself with all the artillery and missiles and batteries just across, you know, the Dnieper River. This is where they yes. are. And so they were, why aren't we just taking him out? Why don't we just bomb her son when he's there? You know, this, this, uh, in a way, strong pressure by nationalists in, in Russia might have also played a role in, you know, showing yet again at the huge cost because some of these missiles, and this is why it's important who did it, is also how they did it. Russians, in the last two days, when they, when they, and this rain of missiles on, on Ukraine, they don't only do it from uh, Rostov, but they also do it from the Black Sea and even from yep. the Caspian. So it's very long range missiles, right? There yes. Are. And so if we do this, why can't we just take out Zelensky across the river, right? When he has the temerity to visit the city. So that that was really picked up by all those pro-Prigozhin, pro-Kadyrov forces, all these nationalists who you know, lionize those irregular forces, so Kaderovsky and Wagner, and are very critical of the army and how the army is being led. And so there, there is a lot of, in the Russian propaganda, there's been a lot of efforts to insulate Putin from that um, withdrawal from her yes. military, decision, military decision. And then you go, you go into this historical um, parallel to the Great Northern War between Peter the Great and the Swedes, which Russians have won. And during this war, the critical battle of Poltava in the early 18th century. So they compare it, you know, there will be this battle of Poltava. And just like Peter the Great, we draw from certain parts, you know, today's Ukraine, mm -hmm. then he hit back and won the war. And this is what we shall do as well. And that might very well be, you know, the plan past winter in the new year at the mobilization bring the Russian forces from all right, so um, you know, let's just turn the tables for a moment because you're coming yeah. back from a dangerous country. Missiles are raining. Let's let's not uh, let's not brand Poland with that. You know, they deserve better than that. Your your homeland. Let's not. Well, let's okay. do we'll that. talk about it after the second visit. Um, but you know, you participate in a really interesting meeting there, and maybe you know, maybe many of the listeners may be following your your episodes with, with Ilya Ponomarov, but why don't you just give us a little bit of a brief of what happened, how, you know, what were your impressions, how did it all go, and maybe we'll put it in a broader context, you know, Russian exile activity and ideas for Russia's futures. Why don't you take us through it a little bit? Well, one of the first things I should share is that, um, you know, when I told people I was going and they understood the nature of the event, and, and just as a little background, in case you haven't been joining the daily show with Ilya Ponomarev, it's at four o'clock every day. Uh, he, well, I think everybody here knows, you know, that he was a, he was a member of the Russian parliament. He was exiled and he has since been working to form a new government, a new Russian government, a democratic government to replace the Putin regime. If you read over, sorry, over my shoulder, you can see the cover of his book, which came out at the hardcover yesterday. Um, so the purpose of this event that I went to, it was, to put it in American terms, it was a constitutional convention. 
And so there were 50 to 60 previously elected Russian officials who were, back up a little bit, Russia has not had legitimate elections in a long time. So let's draw a line in the sand and say since 2014. So everybody that was a delegate in this Congress had been elected by the people of Russia before 2014. So you could say they were among the only legitimately elected Russian officials alive today and all opposed to Putin. So they came together to begin to form a new government, write a new constitution, uh, work on how they would create legitimacy in the eyes of other governments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's frankly a very, um, a very radical move. And, uh, you know, people would say, I would tell people why I was going. It was held in Warsaw. It was held at a very significant place, which Thomas could tell you more about than I can, but it's called, am I pronouncing it correctly? Jablana? Jablana? Anyway, this was where what was called the the Polish Roundtable talks or the Polish Roundtable agreement came to be. And essentially, it was the beginning of the end of the Cold War, I think is a fair categorization. Mm -hmm. So this new Congress was held in this room around a round table, so highly symbolic. And I would tell people why I was going and the purpose of the event, and they would say to me, aren't you afraid? And I would laugh and say, of course not. I'm going to Poland. It's a NATO country. So it did occur to me, though, to be honest, that while I was there, you know, occasionally I would look up at the ceiling and think, you know, this, except for the grace of NATO, frankly, this certainly could be a place that was targeted. And I reconciled that with myself before I went. Was I willing to put myself in a place that could be a target? And my answer to myself and frankly, to my wife and my family was absolutely, you know, this is an incredibly brave move on the part of these deputies and others. Look, I put my name on a book with the title, Does Putin Have to Die? Uh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm in a little, it's a little late now to be timid, right? Right, that's true. Um, I mean, other than the ceiling, you should be always checking your cup of tea. Well, and it was, to, to, to be fair, it was Thomas who said to me, don't drink the tea. We all know, you know, this has been a very dangerous thing for uh, enemies of Putin. Uh, Thomas, I know this is going to break your heart, but I'm not a tea drinker, but I did drink the coffee. Uh, I'm still here. I drank a lot of bottled water. No one around me keeled over except maybe from the vodka, but that was a, a different set of symptoms and a different set of circumstances. But, uh, but it was a remarkable event. I will say, I mean, we could go on about it for hours and I know that's not why you asked, but I will tell you, you know, first of all, everything that was happening around me was happening in Russian. I don't speak Russian. So, so, you know, there was not a high level of understanding on my part. I would grab people that speak English and ask them to help interpret. I will send you to the website. I'm going to type it in here uh, because there's incredible information there about what was done and the goals for the future. Um, so I encourage everybody to go there. Uh, Lucas, if you have that as a link and you can put it in, I might be able to do it while I'm talking. Uh, so there's a lot of working papers, the kind of legal documentation that they were working on, what they as a Congress, what they as the delegates actually have already agreed upon, what they're working on next. Uh, but I will tell you the single most meaningful thing to me of being there was there were 50 to 60 delegates. I don't remember the exact count. So these were all Russians, mostly exiled, who had been elected. And then 
total, I think there was about 150 people there. There were Belarusians, there were Chechnyans, there were uh, Poles, there were representatives from the EU, there were Ukrainians. I mean, there was a there were three Americans and 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 a huge number of other people from around that part of the world, all very interested and motivated by what was happening. And what was fascinating to me when I could speak with someone in English was that everybody I talked to or virtually everybody I talked to had a story about being forced out of their own country and not being able to go home. And, you know, when you're particularly from the U.S., because we're so far away from the rest of Europe, you know, we hear stories of people forced into exile. Maybe we meet someone in our lifetime who's been forced into exile. But when you meet person after person after person after person, political people, artists, writers, business people. I met a guy who's a, he's a contractor. He builds homes. He was, he was part of a party and, you know, the, a, a, a non-Putin political party at home. I mean, not even an important member of the party. And he got a knock on the door one day, you know, you've got 24 hours to get yourself and your family out of the country. And, you know, he's a guy who builds houses. It, it, that to me was the most meaningful thing because it really made me realize, frankly, how lucky we are in the West and that the, the, the vast number of people who've been impacted by a dictator like Putin and other dictators, because there were people in exile from other countries there too. And, you know, it, I wish you all could have been there with me because I think you would have walked with this, walked away with the same impression. You know, it's depressing, but also it fills you with admiration that these people are coming together to fight for what is right so they can live the way we do. I, I you know, I don't think that room will take more people. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> I want to bring something uh, related to the symbolic value of this. So it's great that you're sending those, those links. Fascinating. Uh, pieces to read. Um, that group uh, wraps itself with this relatively new white, white Russian flag, right? Yes. Designed by someone in Berlin, understand, but which is being supported on many occasions by various anti-Putin groups. Uh, what, what's really what they have in common those various, uh, various anti-Putin anti groups is that they do not necessarily recognize each other. Yes. So there is no love lost between some of us. I mean, you the thing sent around the Newsweek article in which Navalny group uses some strong words to attack Ponomaro. Uh, but, you know, Navalny group's using this color tool right now. Right? Yes. The, activity predate, the same with the Holokovsky and Kasparov group met in Vilnius last summer, so a separate initiative. And I believe there was a Kasparov meeting last week uh, yeah, or shortly yeah, after this Congress. Yeah, I think in, he, I saw him on Swiss media. He actually wears color, the white, blue, white color. Right. Um, the uh, Russian pro-Ukrainian legions that are fighting, the volunteers in Ukraine, they also use these, these, this color. Yeah. Sort of subverts the Russian national color in a funny way, by the way, because just for a short history for those who don't know, oh. I think few people know unless you check. The Russian flag, the white, blue, red flag, 
originated after Peter the Great, you know, founder of Romanov dynasty with the Russian imperialism in the European sense. Um, he is a young man who worked in the Netherlands. And of course, the Netherlands have red, white, blue. It used to be orange, white, blue. White and blue was faithful to God, and orange was to commemorate Vilma the founder, but this orange was very difficult, you know, chemicals that were used back then would turn red. So it rained red, white, and blue. And mm -hmm. then he decided, Peter the Great decided to use these colors, these colors of this modern uh, 17th, 18th century Russia, flipping the colors twice, actually, to come close with those three. And later, I think in 19th century, the, the sim symbolism of these colors was the thing white was for the Tsar, uh, blue was for the eagle because after the marriage of Ivan IV to a Byzantine princess, they adopted two-headed eagle of the Byzantine Empire, hence the mm -hmm. to continuity of Third Rome and the Orthodox Church, and then the red one were the people. Right? And but it seems to me that kicking out the red, the intention is we're kicking out blood right we, we we're getting rid of blood we're getting rid of uh, of militarism of that particular heritage so very different groups um sort of pluralistically they they they, they pledge allegiance to this new symbol but there is a lot of conflict inherent conflict between those groups. did you detect any of that in warsaw is there is there a talk about this being you know another competing initiative compared to say Kolokovsky and Kasparov's so are competing to, you know, Navalny people seem like they feel anointed that they should just take over power from yes. the people by, because of their legacy, right? It's just simply no need to even. Well, and, and I think Navalny's, you know, Navalny's kind of a movie star kind of guy, right? I mean, he just, he looks good in front of the camera. Right. He's highly effective. Social media, yeah. Yeah, and his social media, He's got a he's got a big organization, so you know in some ways there is this sort of hierarchy. I was just going to point out that what oops what you were just I was flipping through the book while you're talking because he because in the book we actually talk about the origin of the flag and it's a story a little different than what you just said. I don't know that it's worth me reading it, but but you're very much on the mark about the third panel of white is intended to replace the blood red panel of the of the traditional or the current russian flag um my sense is and i shared this um on the on the the 4 p.m show Ilya put something on facebook about th there's really i'm gonna say four main opposition leaders i think you know you tell me if you think this is a fair assessment there's navalny there's kasparov there's kodakorsky and there's Ilya Ponomarev. And he put an interesting uh, post on Facebook a week or so ago about the four and explaining how he saw them as being different. I, my impression is that Ilya and Kodakorovsky will find it easily to work together. Now, just as some background, and, and this is talked a lot about in the book, Ilya used to work for Kodakorovsky. He began his career in the oil and gas industry for Yukos, and then uh, Kodakorsky's interest in technology and the internet led Ilya to have a career in technology and media and the internet. So I think they, I mean, he and I have not spoke about it other than 
in the writing of the book, but I think he and Kodakorsky have a, uh, you know, a, a, a friendship and a respectful relationship. I think uh, my impression is that, uh, that Ilya and Kasparov have their differences, but, but my impression is that, you know, the ability to work together at some point that there will be some kind of, um, negotiation, I guess, or collaboration or what have you. Um, and I think Navalny for a lot of people, um, is the challenge. And I think it's you who said to me that there are people who suspect that Navalny is actually FSB or something like that. And, and maybe, no, maybe I don't think, I don't think I went that far. I just, I just think you know, my view is that it makes sense for the regime to keep Kremlin alive because he might be useful to the regime. We don't know how the succession will play out. Mm -hmm. So now later, let's, let's not forget, we have two problems. We have a Putin problem. We have a Russia problem. Yes. Putin problem sooner or later will be solved. Yes. Unless there's something about the man we don't know, he's going to die. I mean, at some point, the title of that story, the title of that book is going to be correct. Right. And then, of course, you know, that will create another problem because these regimes don't have a proper succession plan. Right. China toyed with some model. Um, but it just checked it out, right? It doesn't yes. have succession model. Right. So, so that's a, that's the first problem. But the second problem is much tougher. The Russia problem. This really conviction that Russia has the right to rule over an empire and what to do. And because it has never transitioned to a, to a nation state, it's a mindset. Right. It's a mindset. And in this mindset, why Ukraine is so critical and why we've been doing this for so many months is that this is a concentric mindset. The, the Russian empire really collapses without Ukraine. It's not that piece of the former empire matters just as much. Whatever the, sorry, Russian hooligans would shout in the streets of Warsaw. No, yeah. what really matters is Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, northern Kazakhstan. So really heavily Russified parts or countries with some history of successful Russification, even though yeah. historically very different. Um, and that's 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 part of this, and that's in the mindset of many Russians. Uh, keep coming back, you know. Think about think about those uh, exiles, you know, two million exiles. I don't know how many there are. We're talking about ten million, but after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, there were about two million white Russians who established themselves, mostly wealthy, in the West. Many of them in France, in other parts of of, of the collective West, and they were viscerally anti-Bolshevik. Yes. But, you know, two decades later, when Stalin successfully reestablished the Russian empire in the form of USSR, many of them was like, bingo. You know? yes. And Putin, likewise, uh, gives a lot to the Russian elites by promoting this idea of the role, the global role. So the question is, you know, how different those four personalities of those different groups that you mentioned are in the approach to the future imperial history, because essentially, essentially there are four futures for Russia, the way I see it. And tell me how you, how you see it. The first is that it's, it's reduced the commodity supplier. That that's what it is economically. Mm-hmm. This time, not for Germany and the West, but for China, India, maybe mm-hmm. some others with some form of, people say, vassalization towards, towards China. The people in Moscow, and I'm talking here not about exiles, but people who work for, say, Council of Defense and Foreign Relations uh, or Council of International Affairs, which is the 
part of that umbrella organization, Sergei Karganov, he says, well, we, we should get closer to China. That's the solution. That's the long-term solution. Of course, another outcome is that the place just falls apart, right? That the, the process, and I think Kasparov talked about it last week in Switzerland, the process that was frozen during the collapse of Soviet Union by Yeltsin trying to become, you know, a new president of a sovereign country, and that's how yeah. Soviet Union essentially collapsed by Russia exiting Soviet Union, but then kept the Federation together where there are a lot of different forces and minorities, and in some places, especially in Caucasus, these minorities are actually majorities and they might want to exit exit the, the, the Federation. So falling apart is the second, second scenario. The third one is falling apart, but with a civil war, so not peacefully, like Soviet yeah. Union, but much worse. And that's exactly what uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was afraid of with all this, you know, work towards controlling the nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan and Ukraine all the way until 1994, with the best memorandum. So the civil war, you don't want to have a nuclear civil war. And number four is that nothing happens. So basically the country loses its pre-2014 importance. You know, remember pre-2014, there were even members of G8 and so on. So four, but with, I think, two different transition periods. And both are Russian words. And the, the one transition period is the one that, that scares everybody in Ukraine and Poland and about the countries and it's yet additional. So like breathing through it. It's easier to translate it to German. So you just, you breathe through it and you just recover your forces and you move forward or you, you hit back. And that's exactly what the countries of the Rimland fear most because Russia has nothing to offer to Ukraine, has nothing to offer to Lithuania, has nothing to offer to Poland, but has a lot to offer to U.S. by siding with U.S. against China. Yes. Potential reason why Washington does not want scenario two and three, not only three, the civil war, but scenario Russia falling apart because it doesn't want this to become, you know, more so for China to swap. Um, so that's, that's, you know, and then Russia still can offer something to Germany, let's say, what it did before February 24th, the Schwederism and so on. So Piradishka is one way to get to any of those four futures. The mm -hmm. second one, and there's another. Uh, Russian terms called smuta. Smuta, let's say, let's call it sadness, long-term sadness. That actually is the period that I referred to earlier during this time of Poland's invasion of Moscow. There was a long period between the Rurik dynasty and Romanov dynasty of period of troubles, usually translated into English. That's a smuta. And smuta could lead to any of the four, whereas Piradishka more likely would lead only to any of those two, that is Chinese vassaldom or simply much less important country. Partly uh, also because of structural changes in terms of you know what fossil fuels actually represent and, and energy markets over a longer period of time, although this is not something gonna happen overnight thanks to green technologies and uranium yet. Yes. But you know, Saudi Arabia is also obviously preparing for this new future. So so sooner or later that you know peak fossil fuel will happen. I don't think it has happened yet. So you know, four different futures. How do you see from, from what you hear, from your interaction with Ilya and you know, how these different groupings interact with each other? Where is the sweet spot in terms of the end goal and in terms of the transition to the end goal? Because there are two different things, like we're seeing with the Iranian situation, right? There, right. When you have an upheaval, you have the beginning of the upheaval, you have 
some kind of a goal where the current regime is replaced by another and how you do it. Americans show how not to do it in Iraq. Through yes. Yeah. Yes. Then in between, you have this, this period of transition, which I just painted. There are two types historically that Russia actually, you know, either really goes through this very long period of, of, of depression. Uh, you can say the 1990s was also a period of smooth yes. depression, or it just basically breezed through it. And who knows, uh, come 2024, thanks to fantastic oil prices, Russia will hit. You know, take over Moldova, which now is deprived of electricity because already because of its missiles raining on Ukraine. That's a much bigger damage to a, a country next door to Ukraine than what happened in Poland. But guess what? Moldova is not a member of NATO, so it doesn't take our uh, treasury values on right. What do you think? What's what's from from your observations, from your conversations? You know, what is the ideal scenario? Where is it going in the minds of? of the exiles, because we could speak a lot about what people in Moscow think and maybe right. pick for the next week. Just from your interaction, what's your, what's your With, Well, first of all, I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, huh, uh, I have a little clock on my screen that says 3.5 minutes left in the show. And I'm thinking, is that three hours? You just, <laughs> just wasted 18 seconds. Sorry. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, it's clearly a big question. So, and, and you know, you know, my, my, I'm just a Westerner disclaimer, right? I mean, I know what I've learned from the people I've aligned myself with, and I know there's a lot of other things I don't know and don't understand, but I can, I think I can share pretty effectively in two minutes and 36 seconds, you know, the vision that you'll find in this book here and in the minds of the people I was with in Warsaw. And that is that, and you know, it, it sounds like Ronald Reagan. But, you know, the, I, I think the general belief is that, that the people of Russia, if you can, if they suffer enough pain in their everyday life, given the government and the, the autocratic system that they live in, given enough pain, will at some point break and fight back to live free. And, you know, this... What's happening in Iran could not have come at a more interesting time because I think most of us would have said, never going to happen in Russia, never going to happen in Iran. Well, something's happening in Iran. It's not happening in Russia yet. So I think if Ilya was here, he would just say, there's not enough pain yet. At some point, it hurts so much. You do the unspeakable. And, I, you know, I mean, I can relate to that in my own personal life. I think most people can. There's things you dread, but at some point, the, the option to not do it or to ignore it is more painful than the option to do it. And I think that, you know, I'm not the authority here, but I think the general thinking in the most Western way that I can put it, because I'm a Western guy, is that, you know, at some point, the Russian people themselves, starting small and growing, and frankly, you know, it's already starting. The bridge blew up. You know, Daria Dugina was assassinated. Maybe they were aiming for her dad. There's news today about a drone strike, I think, on a refinery. You know, the recruitment offices are, people are throwing Mazel Tov cocktails through the windows. I mean, you know, there are people in Russia, Russians inside Russia, fighting against the current system who want to live in a democracy. Those numbers will grow. They must grow exponentially, like we're seeing in Iran. I mean, what happened in Iran 
just a few weeks ago was a small number and it's grown to a larger and larger number. But I think that is, and I don't think it fits the scenarios you painted. I think that is the idea that the people of Russia will grow to such numbers that they will demand to live in a free and democratic society. And I think part of what Ilya and his group want to do is to show that we have a transitional government, not a permanent government. If you read the book, the goal is not to create a permanent government. The goal is to create a transitional government that is only in place long enough to write a new democratic constitution, to create new laws, a new judiciary, and have free and fair democratic elections. And then this transitional government is dissolved by law, by contract. And one of the things that I think is so interesting and what Ilya is proposing in the book is, if you're in the leadership of this transitional government, you know going on in that you can never serve in the government of Russia again to prevent corruption, to prevent self-serving. And so that's what I've signed up for. Is it possible? I don't know, but I believe it's possible or I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Right. I think this is really interesting, the, the, the angle you're presenting, uh, that they're not there yet because the risk is too high and the benefit is too, is too low. So the pay, level of pain, the threshold pain, hasn't been high enough to change that dynamic. But the answer you're giving, and this is interesting because that's probably because of your work on, on the book, is about the internal process of Russia. The four scenarios, none of them is in conflict with that because they relate to Russia's future role as a country. Yes. And that needs to be rethought because what, what has led to the misery of Russian people is the misconception about what kind of role this colonial empire should exercise and that's that's a huge discussion and i think i think so far people within russia with what they're allowed to say have probably more ideas than people outside russia and i'm happy to be contradicted next week or or, or whenever let's let's talk about it some more well let me just first of all i want to acknowledge what agnieszka is saying and i'm going to read it because there's a lot there and i want to make sure we're all on the same page and we're going to go over today, folks. So please stay with us if you can't. If you can't, we understand. But this is too good a conversation. Just cut off because the clock said we should. Agnieszka says, I think the majority of Russians are very much used to suffering. They lived through gulags for generations. There is a minority who got better life working in international companies or traveling abroad. They do suffer and they choose to leave the country. The others believe it will always be like this. The bar is very, very low. I'm going to share something about Agnieszka in that, um, you know, you met her yesterday. If you were watching Ilya's show, I was at her home in Warsaw a week ago when we did a show together. She speaks Russian. She's spent time in Russia. She spent time all, I think, all over Eastern Europe and, and the rest of Europe as well. She understands in, in some very valuable ways, I think, the mindset of Russians very deeply. Um, I, I want to... It's a very, very interesting comment when Agnieszka says that they've lived through gulag. Because our mistake is often to believe that the modernization and technology in today's world will somehow cocoon the new generations, the young people who did not live through gulag, into a new world. But we know sufficiently well that the differences between different people living in different countries do not only 
derived from their personal experience, but right. also from the experience of their ancestors. The best country that does a lot of research on this is Israel on Holocaust. With just value, like we call it PTSD, right? Post-traumatic right. stress disorder. Elements of PTSD apparently are inherited. And so imagine how much PTSD, as we call it today, is inherited yes. in blood, to use yes. almost a fascist term, of Russians. That's not comparable to, you know, where Kasparov was this week in Switzerland. Nobody in Switzerland right. has it. Right. right? So right. partly differences and problems of our understanding each other as groups result from those differences, not only our personal experience, but something that we carry in our yes. nervous system. We don't know much about it yet, but it's encouraging that more and more research is done into that. So that is true. That makes it very difficult to apply universalist solutions as the left would always want you to do, right? Yes. Like, this is the rational solution. We'll just discuss it. And here it is, ideal, perfect, say, European Union. Everything and, we, and we all feel good and we all clap and we have a group hug and all the problems are solved. Yes. Yeah, so. That's true. Um, clever propaganda, yes, as we discussed, the, the indoctrination and so on, which, of course, has intensified in the last couple. So I want to say, um, I, I think from my Western perspective, Ilya does a really good job of addressing what you just said, Thomas, about this, you know, the, the history of the people and how that has formed them to be the way they are. And I think he also addresses why he believes or what it will take to overcome that history. You know, I mean, history repeats itself, right? I mean, but, but it doesn't mean you're a slave to it. It doesn't mean that you can't unenslave yourself from the history as well. But often it starts by knowing the history and understanding the history and being strong enough to move beyond the history. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I, I do want to wrap this one. Neska says there is PTSD and there's constant, very clever propaganda. We are the best country in the world. Crimea is ours. There is no separate. You could, yeah, I mean, you have to understand that when you own the media, which Putin owns the media, I'm guessing he also has a crew of psychologists and sociologists and psychiatrists who are helping figure out the best messages to keep people feeling enslaved. You know, and as Ilya says, Putin doesn't have to convince the Russian people that he's the best leader. He just has to convince them that he's better than all the rest. That if anything, you know, it may suck today, but if you replace me, it's going to suck worse. That's not a very positive way. That, that is certainly not a you know, a, a Barack Obama kind of statement about the future, right? It's not a Ronald Reagan kind of statement about the future. It's not about what glory we can build together. It's about, without me, it's going to get even worse and it already sucks. That's a really dark place to live. And if you can, I believe, and I think this is what Ronald Reagan was trying to do, if you can give people a glimmer of sunlight and make them believe that they can have for themselves a free life at some point, They'll be willing to fight for it. But likewise, gloom and doom is a pretty good agglomerator. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we know it works because it's working. We know it works. So I'm going to wrap this up.